everybody. I'm Josh. I am Alyssa. And we are back with a midwinter break episode of The Podcast Was On Fire. And it wasn't my fault. We'll read along pod where we dig into the good, the great, and the problematic of the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm a longtime Dresden reader. And this is my first time through. And together, we try to figure it out as best we can and hopefully say something almost in the right direction. And one of you guys let mm-hmm. us know exactly what's right. <laughs> How you doing today, Ice? I'm doing pretty well. It is cold as all get out up here in the South Bay. Mm, goodness gracious. It's nice and warm in here. I actually left the uh, heater on. I don't really know what this is. I have like a weird radiator heater situation in each room. And I mm-hmm. left it on pretty high in my computer room last night. So I came up here and it's nice and toasty. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Sure, it cost me a, a bundle, but you know what? For comfy uh, potting, money is no object. <laughs> awesome. Oh, goodness gracious me. We are creeping up here. This is the startling, exciting, stunning, spectacular finale of White Night this week, Chunk mm-hmm. 7, chapters 38 through the tail end of the book. Whenever we hit the back end, we know we're done. <laughs> What uh, what you think so far? Um, so I went through and um, like I've done on all the other books, and went through the whole book this week. Oh, awesome! And it's interesting, kind of like the stuff you know, and sort of I'm way more suspicious of Elaine, and you know all that fun stuff. <laughs> well, another run through, you're even more suspicious. Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, which is great. Conveniently gets left out of the actual battle. Hmm. hmm. Uh huh. Hmm. But there are other things that I will bring up in our. Oh, excellent. 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 I mm-hmm. went to urgent care. Ooh, hey. Yeah, very exciting. Party animal. You know, I have all the fun. It is, uh, they call midwinter break up here, which I think is just rich people go skiing week. <laughs> is what I've gathered. Well, I have the week off of coaching. So yes, nice. I decided to finally bite the bullet and go have somebody look at my shoulder. Somebody poke and prod at your booby shoulder. Yeah, no, the x-rays, no, nothing broken, which is exciting. That's good. I didn't think anything was broken. I figured it would have let me know before then, but I got muscle relaxers and I got steroids. So I'm going to go hit some home runs <laughs> and chill afterwards. I think it's my plan for the whole week. Oh, but nothing too exciting beyond that. Well, that's good, though. Sometimes things not being exciting are a plus. They are. It's not too shabby. We got a couple weeks here before I head back. I think this the weekend of... Either the 2nd or the 3rd, or the ninth and 10th. One of those two, I'm in San Diego. Oh, nice. Uh, or County, rather, not San Diego. But that will be lovely, just to check in on some sunshine and some SoCal positive vibes. And some good Mexican food. <laughs> and some good Mexican food. I've had some mediocre Mexican food recently. Mm. As best as I can hope for, at least, up here. Hey, you know, sometimes you just gotta make do. It's all you can do. Make the best with what you're given. This ain't dying, this is living, as those philosophers in the best of all the Charlottes would say. <laughs> all right, I guess I catch us up here and get to uh, break down chapter 38. Woo-hoo. Without, uh, wow, without objection, here we go. What are we at here? Stuff and things, things and stuff. A lot of stuff, a little bit of things, a whole bunch of stuff. Spin some things sprinkled throughout. Our plucky heroes have been tracking down killers of... Minor magical talents, kind of how this started. There were 
some notes left specifically, you know, magical notes left specifically for Harry at some ostensible suicides of minor magical talent. So, you know, women generally with some magical talent, but not nearly enough to be recognized by the white council. And as the plot has thickened, we've seen that this has been going on in multiple cities throughout the United States. And it turns out there has been a concerted effort to cull women of magical talent to thin out the bloodline and, you know, the long-term goal of eliminating the freaks, the magical folk from the humanity pool so that the white court of vampires will have an easier time chowing down, as they say. And as it's come to a head, we've seen that there are multiple factions of the white court working towards this end. Members of all three major houses, the Malvora, the Scavis, and the Wraiths, our old buddy, old pal, Magical Wraith is back and working for the bad guys again. Uh-huh. Shock me, shock me. With that deviant behavior. <laughs> As the, <laughs> even though Papa Wraith is suggesting that he wants to have some sort of truce with the White Court, Madrigal is working out against his own house with the Malvora, and they're working against the Scavis, kind of with and against, right? They're both, do- they're both doing the same thing, but they're trying to be the ones that end up on top of the heap at the end. And as we come to a head here, the heroes are headed for a confrontation with the white court ne'er-do-wells at the Wraith Manor. And we have Warden Ramirez in tow working with Harry here. And they have just called out Vito Malvora and Magical Wraith as breaking the laws. And they have called for them under Code Duello. They're going to go to fisticuffs here in the Wraith Deeps. Elaine was along and she's out of the picture at this point. We're still very suspicious of her, though she did some good work as well. This ch- this uh, novel, suppose. Mouse is doing good stuff. He's right now waiting outside the chateau with Molly in a hidden blue beetle. We're not really sure where any of the other major players are up to, but we know they're around and ready. And there's a mysterious phone call with Marcone that we didn't get a whole lot out of, but we know he's also, we know he's somehow going to win this whole thing. And as we get into this here, Laura Wraith has just tossed a red handkerchief in the air. And as soon as it touches the ground, we are about to start this duel. And I think it might touch the ground any moment now. This made me think of, uh, I meant to say this last week, but I forgot. You know, the scene in Greece where they're racing in the um, Los Angeles River bed for pinks. Yeah. Totally was what this was. This is our battle sequence. Um, we learned that Vito Malvora is fast. Some people are faster than others. I'm fast, always have been, especially for a man my size. But this duel had gotten off to a fair start, and no merely mortal hand is faster than a vampire's. Vito Malvora's gun cleared its holster before my fingers had tightened on the blasting rod's handle. Some vampires are faster than others. Vito was fat. So that gives us a little bit of insight into... Holy fuck balls right off the bat. Um, but we also learn that Ramirez is faster on the draw, not physically, but his will. So he puts up this gooey green cloud of a mist, I guess you could say, that is uh changes the physics, I guess, of the world, sort of where it's kind of like when they shoot into like the gooey stuff to do ballistics. That's what I pictured in my head, only green and glowing. So it slows down all of the gunfire that Vito has been firing, and it turns it into little bits of dust. Bill smacks Harry, 
But this shield was nothing like Harry's. Harry's is strong and rigid, and Ramirez's is disrupting and dispersing. Uh, and it turns their own energy against it, which is pretty freaking cool. And then we also have Harry's sending a blast of fire at Vito, and Vito's fast, but it still gets his leg, which is great. Um, Vito has some throwing knives that he slams at the boys. And we get a little insight into a vampire versus human with throwing knives, which makes sense. They basically, the vampire could throw them at 100 miles, hundreds of miles an hour. But because of the way Harry enacted his shield, it doesn't get him, but it, the, the handle of the knife bounces off his hand and makes his hand numb. And dro- he, he drops his staff. We're going back and forth. Vito is coming up to their flank. And Harry puts out his shield in a big old wall and makes the outside of it reflective. In that reflection, Vito sees somebody, which I think is just out of the corner of his eye. He sees movement and he thinks it's Harry or Ramirez, throws his gun at it, which causes it, the gun to shatter. Because the way the gun had, had uh, the slide had been locked open. He threw a temper tantrum and threw the gun at it. Because, I mean, obviously. So he then jumps up 10 or 12 feet in the air to jump over the freaking shield wall. Oh, and that's when Harry gets hit by the knife. But then a, one of the throwing knives goes into Carlos's thigh. Or, sorry, his calf. His calf, yeah. And he curses when that happens, which wouldn't you. But Harry couldn't move the fingers off his right hand correctly, so he can't use it, the energy rings on it, on that hand. And... Vito's coming up to him with a fencing sword. So Harry's like, he knows that he can't win fencing a vampire with a staff versus a sword. So he fizzores and the broad wave of energy throws Vito across the room into the thralls. But because he's gone such a distance, it doesn't, it's not enough energy to hurt them. Uh, Harry says that he could have tackled somebody with greater power than that. But then Harry makes a joke out loud, because of course he does. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Bowling for Vampires. To my intense discomfort, a round of laughs went up from the Wraith contingent, and I got a smattering of applause. The Wraiths have the same sense of humor as Harry does, which is funny. Because that is totally a sense of humor, obviously. And so Madrigal is now running at Ramirez with his spear held high. And Ramirez is down to one knee because he can't hold himself up on a calf with a knife through it. And he throws some magic out. And he says, Ramirez flung the gathered energy in a last useless strike that missed Magical entirely and splashed on the stone at his feet. And Ramirez is a fucking genius because this turns into a pool of nearly frictionless dust. This is such a cool spell. So rad. And it's like... So do you think it's like a, a pool? Like like he's it's like quicksand. He goes into it and it's quicksand, or is it just slippy slidey? It's slippy slidey. Like there basically turns it into like ice. Yeah, similar. For just frictionless, so like you can't move or stand or do anything. There's nothing he can. I was hoping it was like a, a bathtub full of. Uh, but alas, you can't win quicksand. them all. <laughs> quicksand to exist in your life. I just want quicksand. Okay? Finally, finally, I just want quicksand. It seems like it was going to be a much bigger problem when we were children. Um, so Harry finally gets power back into, uh, feeling back into his right hand and uses the rings. Must be nice. Right. <laughs> I've been feeling my right hand for a week. Madrigal had worked it out. He thrashed to one side of the trough. Ramirez's spell had eaten in the floor, thrust the handle of his spear down onto the ultrafine dust, 
and shoved himself roughly up and out of the sand trap, but not before Ramirez drew the silver warden's blade from his hip, the sword designed to let the wardens of the White Council slice into any enchantment, unraveling it with a single stroke. So he slices and dices magical, because, of course. The sword cut through the wooden haft of the sphere, of the spear, snickersnack, which was itself an indicator of just how unbelievable, unbelievably sharp an edge it had to have carried. Lucio did good work. It was just collateral damage, though. The warden's blade also licked lightly across each of Madrigal's arms. The black cloth armbands erupted into sudden flame, the embroidered symbols on them flaring into painfully bright light, as if the scarlet red had been made of magnesium. Any construct that held enough energy to counteract the magic of a major league wizard, especially a combat specialist like Ramirez, had to have been holding all kinds of energy. Ramirez had just cut it loose. So Ramirez, I mean, Madrigal goes down crying and screaming and good God, <laughs> Which we're is done fun. with him. Um, <laughs> and so Harry hits him, hits Madrigal with a little bit of power, um, goes up over the Wraith contingent like a living sizzling comet and slammed him into the cavern wall behind them with literally bone shattering power. Broken, bleeding wreckage tumbled limply down. And the wizards, I snarled, picked up the spare. Gotta love how serious he is in a time of battle. Mm-hmm. Oh, he already said he was bowling for vampires. Oh, yeah. Bowling for vampires. And the wizards picked up the, sk- the spare. And Vito was untangling himself from the pile of people and comes to his feet with a sword in hand. And Harry puts up his dome of shield. And calls his will onto the his staff with all the runes, lighting it up. Yeah. The new shield was harder than the old one, so it was worrying him out faster. And at this point, all the vampires have come to their feet. He talks about the spectacle of death. Death did not come to, swiftly to vampires, but the old reaper was in the house. And when he struck, he would take lives that should have lasted for centuries more. That realization let me understand something else about the white court. That for all of their allure, that forbidden attraction, the unnatural magnetism of a creature so beautiful outside and so twisted within, with their ability to give you the greatest pleasure of your life even as they snuffed it out, they, the vampires themselves, were not immune to that dark attraction. It's almost like it's a whole idea of like staring at a or getting watching a, a, tra- a car wreck on the freeway. It's very much they're it almost humanizing them, which is an odd thing to notice in the midst of all this. So we learned that death had already taken Madrigal Wraith and Vito's next. The white court, one and all, longed to see it happen, to feel death brush close by, to be tantalized by its nearness to revel in its presence and passing. Words could not express how badly they needed therapy. Dysfunctional sickos. But they still have to work. They're not done. And then he looks at Vito, and Vito doesn't look frightened. He looks pleased. He throws his head back and spreads his arm. And Harry shouts to Ramirez, kill him. And Vito shouts out for his master. Ramirez was just a beat too slow. And power begins to build. It wasn't explosive magic, but it was strong, quivering on a level so fundamental that I could feel it in my bones. 
A second later, I recognized this power. I had felt the dim echoes of its passing months before in a cave in New Mexico. There was a deep throb, then another, then a third. And then the air before the white throne suddenly swirled. It spun for a moment, and then there was abruptly an oblong disk of darkness hanging in the air. It spun open, pushing the space of the cavern aside, and a dank, musty, mildew-scented flood of cold air washed out of the passage that had been opened from the never-never and into the deeps. And out come some fucking terrifying-ass ghouls. These were eight-foot-tall ghouls, hunched shoulders, and it looked more like a gorilla, and its jaw was far more massive than with muscle. Its forearms were even longer than a normal ghouls, its claws heavier, longer, and backed by knobbed ridges of horn that would let the thing crush and smash as effectively as it sliced and diced. These fuckers sound terrifying. Oh, yeah. Regular ghouls are bad, but this right? is fucking bonkers. And these are bigger, badder, grosser versions of them. More of them poured out of the gate. Ten, twenty. They kept coming and coming. Hell spells, I whispered. Beside me, Ramirez swallowed. I am going to die a virgin. <laughs> and then Vito, at last the masquerade ends. Kill them, kill them all. And the ghouls went mad with bloodlust. And Harry says, right then, this would be the trap. Good point. Good point. Ugh. There's a second here. Where he doesn't say it, but I wonder if Ramirez thinks he picked the wrong side. Think Ramirez so? says, I knew it. I knew it was a setup. That's right. It is. Um, you know, and he's standing there with a, you know, with a huge smile on his face. Like, I think it would be confusing for sure, but I don't know if he thinks that he chose the wrong side. That's fair. Yeah, I, I think he's just like, what the fuck is this crazy ass wizard guy? Continuing to smile. That's true. It doesn't really feel like he thinks Harry's a bad guy or anything like that. But it's more like, what what the fuck is going on here? Because Harry's excited about this. Ramirez can't fucking move, you know, and he pulls up. <laughs> oh, hold them. Get out of here. Get over yourself and cover my back. <laughs> I love it. Um, but he uh it just it's an interesting exchange that like him pointing uh-huh. out the smile on his face is all um there's something to it. I don't know what, what the feeling is, but you're right. It's definitely not. Ramirez doesn't think Harry's a bad guy. No, Ramirez I don't just, think so at wondering, all. I, I still, that doesn't necessarily mean what I said isn't wrong. Like what, who did I sign up? What with did here? I just get into? But I exactly. think part of it too, is he knows Harry well enough because on multiple occasions, he said, you're fucking crazy, bro. Like you're, you are insane, man. And we know that. I mean, Murphy yeah, said it. Every one of his allies has said every so Every single one of his allies has said it so far in, the, in this book. Um, but I mean, I mean, even in in New Mexico, um, uh, Reamer has said something to that degree. Yeah. Um. That how long do you think it would take him to get to that point? Yeah. Like the skill, his skill set. We see Aparturum, and we open a way of our own from the wraith deeps to the never never onto a cold and frozen woodland sea. Silvery moonlight slipped through. The freezing mm-hmm. wind gusted. Um. And that snow is blowing powdery white. Mm-hmm. The- Sounds a lot like the when they opened up the way towards Arctic Storm. Yeah, it's somewhere chilly. Somewhere in the winter. And the ectoplasm, it turns into ectoplasm as it gets through, which is cool. The visual Im- imagery on that is so flipping rad. Yeah, I want to do a YouTube version of this pod where we put like 
you know, like those like world civil war maps where it shows like where everything is. <laughs> Cause this scene, I'm not a good cartographer though. <laughs> this scene is very much like, it's difficult for me to understand all the geography that's going on here. And I'd love to visualize it better. Not saying it's written poorly saying my understanding is poor. Well, and there's also so much fucking shit going on that it is a little overwhelming. Exactly. It, and there's, there's two ways. There's an entrance to the cavern. Mm-hmm. There's, a, you know, a chasm to nowhere. There's a throne. But, but the other thing, though, is because of the nature of this battle, I feel like it makes it even more chaotic. Not, I mean, knowing that, there are, that it is a vast space. There's this thing on this side. There's this side on this side. There's this group of people all around. It just not knowing exactly where anything is makes it more chaotic. and. I kind of love that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. It adds, it kind of heightens the tension a little bit. Yeah. As things are coming at you from every direction. Exactly. I think it's great. Out of the opening steps, Thomas, saber in hand, his characteristic sawed off shotgun in the other. He's got biker leather and body armor and honest to God, chain mail. His hair is tied back. Take your time. We're not in a crisis or anything. <laughs> got to get a jab into his brother. Before anything starts, mm-hmm. immediately he's, of course, in reply, saves his life. You know, as they do. <laughs> Completely unrelated. This just popped into my head. So I'm learning Russian. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, because why not? I was telling Kyla, because she's learning Spanish and Mandarin. In Russian, brother is brocht. Sounds like brat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was telling that that was the funniest thing I learned. She's like, that's hilarious. So yeah, brother is brat <laughs> in Russian. Right. See, Navalny's widow got blocked, uh, suspended on Twitter today. Why? Because Elon Musk is fucking oh. a treat. <laughs> yes. Along with everyone else is working with fucking Russians to destroy this country. Ugh. But I digress. So he gives his brother some shit. And while he's too busy giving his brother shit to watch out for himself, uh, Ramirez saves his life real quick. And you know, Thomas says, the others are right behind out. So suggesting there's more coming and we do see, you know, Thomas drags him out of the, out of the claws harm's way. I do like this exchange where this gigantic, crazy fucking ghoul and, you know, Thomas has seen ghouls before, but even still, he says, what the hell was that? Uh, that was one. (laughs) (laughs) There are very many more than that. You see Ramirez again, still has that knife sticking out of his calf, Mm -hmm. which will continue to come up as we, the cavern's gone insane, is the description, and it's not a bad one. There are dozens of ghouls, at least, more pouring out of the gates on the other side of the cavern. They're attacking basically everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. We see Lady Malvora getting ripped to pieces in front of him, and Vito Malvora is the one seemingly running this. So that's confusing. As far yeah. as loyalties and. But I don't know how much power he has over the ghouls. Remember, ghouls aren't smart. Yeah, but. Like, and all... he does say kill them all. Absolutely. Well, that's what I'm saying is that. No specificity, goddammit. Well, but I think he wants this, right? He he shows later that he has some modicum of control over them. At the very least, he can give them stop yeah, orders. And he has no interest here in doing that. So. Not really sure what Vito's getting up to here, what his ultimate goal is, yeah. but it no longer seems to be to depose Wraith. Or not and, just Wraith. Sure. 
Sure. I mean, maybe, but at this point, the entire power structure of the white court is imperiled. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I, sure. You know, what... actually, now that you mention that, mm-hmm. I wonder if the goal is to get rid of his aunt because she would take the throne ahead of him. Yeah, but there's no one else to support him if all the other Malvoras die also. That's true. And like you said, kill them all. It yeah, he says kill them all. It doesn't seem to be very discerning. So, so no. But it could he also wants to move on from this white court nonsense. Be bloodless. Uh, but it could also be bloodless at this point because remember, he is like his his um succubus energy is pain, right? Incubus, but yeah. Incubus. Incubus succubus is the female version. Uh incubus thing is pain. Only and one's hit man. Maybe it's the it's just the bloodlust from the, the battle. Possibly. I mean, he you know, also from the duel, and we see him, he shouldn't have the amount of magical power he has, so he's clearly... Yeah. But we already know he's in league with Cowl. Correct. So... But he's, he's made some duel, some deals, rather, and yeah, there's definitely more to this than a white court power play by yeah. now. This is... Oh, yeah. This is a whole nother we, step up. But we kind of know that because of the black circle that he speaks of with Cal. I'm telling yeah. you, having, having, having read the whole book this week before this, I've got all of these other insights into because the first time when I just read these, these chapters, then I went back and did the whole book. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I forgot about that. Because, I mean, we've been doing this over the course of like, what, two months, this one yeah. book. So it really does. It's an interesting kind of uh, thing to see. Yeah, Absolutely there's and it's great there's it's great really more there's more to it than any one of the things we're seeing perhaps um, it's it's more than meets the eye <laughs> i know i'm a dork i can't help it um transformer roll out autobots roll out continuing as our allies and others step out of the way we see murphy as well as the gentlemanliest of all our sometimes allies sometimes villains. enemies <laughs> Marcone, and we see Hen- Cujo Hendricks, but also a number of very well-trained and very well-prepared mercenaries as mm-hmm. well. And they step through here. And very clearly, um, Marcone has been tasked with coming through and getting ourselves an exit, um, an extraction here with Harry et al., from the deeps where they kind of knew things were going to go poorly in some fashion. I don't think we thought it was going to be exactly like this, but we knew things were going, there was going to be a trap obviously. Right. And, you know, obviously Thomas is not going to leave without Justine. And obviously Harry is not leaving without Thomas. Exactly. Ergo Marcone, we got to go get the girl. And this line here, he says, come to think of it. There's a whole lot of people who didn't need to be here. And some damn compelling reasons to take them with us. So, um, we have a good exchange here, though. Dresden, I agreed to an extraction, not to a war. A war is all we've got. We got to get Wraith out of this in one piece, and the whole thing is for nothing, and no one pays you off. No one pays me off if I'm dead either. <laughs> but Arco knows he's not going to win this argument, so they do their darndest. Yeah. Um, you know, Murphy does a little twisty, tw- twisty twirl on Hendrix's arm. And I love that. Yeah, that's fine. I, well, I, I also love, go ahead. What I love is that she is, she probably underestimated her 
And but the one of the best things that the um the the image that he gives of um he's the Clifford Clifford the big red dog yeah. and she's Emily. I'm like I just I mean it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but you know he underestimated her. She's five foot nothing and he is like what, six six? Of course. It also I mean, I think adds a little bit of I mean at some point Murphy size. let go of the bad guy. <laughs> at some point size does matter. And Murphy yeah. is, you know, kind of a cartoon character in some of these scenarios. But Yeah, uh, but I still love it. But also if you get someone's hand real quick, you can do a little twisty twirl and it is problematic just by leverage. I love that that conversation with Marcone. Mm-hmm. Where you know, I can't threaten you. You know, but I can't force you to do anything, but people are dying, John. Help me save them. Yes. And the who do you think I am, wizard? Both, I think, to the sentiment as much as to him calling him John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> but I think him calling him John also was a, because we always talk about, remember, names and honorifics, and he's just throwing all that out the door and saying, John, I need your help. Yeah. And he says, please, without being asked. Yeah, no, it's it's showing some vulnerability. Well, yeah, I, and I love this from Marcone. I mean, yeah. I, I love this version of Marcone that I think Harry touched on it later. Where it's like, it's not only because it's cleaner that he doesn't like killing people. Like, yeah, like he might also just not like innocent people dying. Like huh. he could just have a sliver of humanity in there somewhere behind those gorgeous dollar bill colored eyes. <laughs> but that entire interaction mm-hmm. is amazing people are dying john help me save them god please help me save them and then who do you think i am someone who can help me maybe the only one like i mean someone who can help them help them rather maybe the, around. May- don't, don't help me yeah yeah but but again that's that's harry's thing where it's it's about other people and i think he and Marcone have that in common that they don't want the weak the young, the smaller, that you know, the children, the women, the innocent. They don't want anything to happen to them. Mm-hmm. They feel guilt when it does. Oh, so, yeah, we've seen that for sure. With they Marcone very much already. are aligned in that manner. Marcone says yes. So Harry tasks Ramirez and some of the mercenaries to hold the gate. <laughs> Ramirez asks, who are these people? <laughs> later. Uh, Discuss that part later. Ramirez takes so much on faith here, and you can see, like, what, what kind of a friend he is but also how much he believes in what harry here he will believe in what harry is doing no questions asked i mean where there will be questions asked obviously but he will believe he will believe there's a benefit of the doubt that is given that a lot of people wouldn't give Mm -hmm. certainly but it's he just has faith in him harry tells marconi you're not coming with me he's like i'm coming shut the fuck up let's go (laughs) and they realize there's not enough time to argue so they keep going and we see some grossness as the Icor and the gross, gross, gross of the gross, where all the, br- the broken down and chopped up ghouls, fluids, as they say, are traveling uphill back to their bodies. They're regenerating on the fly here. This is not only yeah. fucking disgusting, but it's terrifying. also terrifying <laughs> and really means that this is a, there is no winning this fight. Mm-mm. Absolutely 0% chance of winning this in a stand-up fight. We got to get the fuck out of here. And this just can't get much more disturbing. Follow me. He just hit my, I gripped my staff in both hands and charged ahead into the mass of maddened vampires and ghouls to save one monster from another. That's just so good. Mm-hmm. And so 
they're heading towards the little crowd of, of wraiths, a little knot of struggling vampires around the White King. And there are uber ghouls, is what he calls them, ripping into the leading families of the White Court. And this, this spoke to me. I slipped on some slimy i but didn't fall on my ass. For me, that's actually pretty good. Because <laughs> that's me. So he's trying to think ahead. He's trying to plan. He's assuming we got to the White King in one piece and convinced Lara to team up and follow us. What then? What was the next step? So the ghouls are starting to head up to the cave's entrance. And they're obviously, it's probably part of the plan to stop the, the, the two rescuing Lara and the King and the wraiths. So they also would stop anybody from getting, from getting out, which meant that they, the, uh, our team of plucky heroes and mercenaries ha- are going to have to go out through the gate. And that also meant that if Cal was over there, he would hardly sit by and do nothing, which we know. I might be able to counter him if I weren't defending the gate. Oh, I might be able to counter him if I were uh, for defending the gate. My skills aren't fine, but I'm pretty strong, and I'm good at adapting them on the fly. Cowell had already cleaned my clock in two fights already, but slowing and delaying him wasn't the same as trying to wipe the walls with him. Which, again, this is reasonable. And Harry said that, you know, he has understood the importance of retreat because of the war with the Red Court, where get the fuck out and live to fight another day. And he has agreed with that concept rather than staying to to destroy your, you know, to win. And he, and he said that, that it would have to be Harry because Ramirez couldn't do it. He was a dangerous combat wizard, but his skills just weren't strong enough or broad enough to pose a significant obstacle to Cal. If Cal, or Vito for that matter, saw what was going on and the ghouls concentrated on the gates. And then we learn that the gaggle of ghouls around Lord Scavis has just crumbled. And Vito is in the middle of the mass, shoving a ghoul toward a wounded vampire, snarling at others, giving orders. The largest of the ghouls were with Vito. And Marcone points out that the vampire has the strongest and largest of the creatures with him. He'll hit any pockets of resistance with them, use them as a hammer. And he's, he, you know, he says, all right, guys, follow me. And Henrik's like, go and where? Where are we going? Into the hole I'm about to make. <laughs> and ugh, this is, Marcone says, they're mostly eating now. But the second we start to break them free, those others, these others are going to come after us. So he and he is understanding this, but Marcone is kind of pointing things out. And Marcone's kind of like his his second right now, giving him the information as he sees it and Harry's processing it. And Murphy has her rad little gun just taking the fuck out of everything. Um, and Justine has an air horn. She's blasting an air horn. I'm assuming to get the attention of everybody or of Harry. Yes. By the kind of defensive, but also like, like something like, just like a noise blast, you know? Yeah. I wonder though if it's if it's so that Harry can find them. Probably not unhelpful to that respect as well. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, it's I didn't even pay attention to the the air horn when I was going through it, but now I'm trying to wonder. And he Fazares using Lashiel's Hellfire within his staff with his will, and he's just flying people out of the way. And we learn that they're also finishing off Lord Scavis and his retainers. They are moving and advancing through this melee. And, you know, we, we get a little insight into how strong these fuckers are. Hendrick's a huge man, 300 pounds and more. And he kind of understands that Hendrix was definitely a football player. But he's having to work with Thomas. You know, he's knocking the creature out down. And he and Thomas are working together to 
try to to at least get these fuckers out of the way. They are a two-man wrecking crew, it seems like. Thomas has his supernatural powers as a vampire, and Hendrix just has pure mass. And then he sees the women, the Wraith women, a line of savage goddesses bathed in black blood. Lara is drenched in the shit. Her hair had been soaked flat to her skull, and it clung to the skin of her black-spattered cheek and to the lines of her dark-stained throat. She's got a knife in either hand, and her eyes are chrome silver, which is which is her inner vampire coming out, right? When they're the <laughs> silver eyes. Yes, the hunger. Um, in that moment, Lara was more than simply a vampire of the white court, a succubus, pale and deadly. She was a remain- reminder of days gone by when mankind paid homage to blood-soaked goddesses of war and death, revered the dark side of the protective maternal spirit, the savage core of the strength that still allowed tiny women to lift cars of- off of their children or to turn upon their tormentors with newfound power. Lara's power, at that moment, hovered around her, deadly in its primal seduction, its sheer strength. And on either side of her are her sisters, all of them armed like motherfuckers. And he didn't know any of them, but they stared at him with ravenous energy and maddeningly seductive destruction spattered all over them. I mean, this is a great visual. And he says to Lara, we don't have time for for this. Do you want out or not? And Thomas and Justine are finally reunited. And he sees, kind of the way he describes it, he almost sees Thomas's humanity. He becomes softer, somehow gentler, as though he had been suddenly relieved of an intolerable agony I had never realized he felt. Ah, Lara said, her voice was a quavering, silvery thing, utterly fascinating and completely inhuman. True love. And at that moment, you know, Marcone's like, hey, Dresden, let's get the fuck going. And he's, he proposes an alliance between the wraiths and his, Harry's people until we get out of here alive. And he explains this little interaction in which we know that Lara is controlling Wraith's mind. And Lord Wraith says, naturally, Dresden, and starts this bullshit speech. And Harry's like, yeah, 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 whatever. All right, let's go. Run now. Speeches later. <laughs> and about 20 of the Wraith had survived the fight. Uh, the remaining ghouls had sprung away during our unexpected assault. And they're now in circles. They're just prowling around the group of them in circles. Um, Mark, we learned Marcone's soldiers had moved the white-robed thralls out of the cavern. And Harry was surprised that there were more of them alive than he expected. But then he realized that they were, the ghouls were, not, were ignoring the thralls, focusing instead on what they knew to be the real threat, the keepers of the mind-numbed herds. There's a lot of a lot more going on here as Harry's figuring it out as we go. And it's all very it's obviously very planned. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And so he says to Lara, bring the thralls. What? Bring the bloody thralls or you can damned well stay here. And she does. Bloody? Why does he say bloody? Isn't that weird? I thought it was weird. But Lara says bloody later, too. And I was just I I was of note. Uh So they start heading for the gate. It's a go, 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 go now, go now. And then an almost human voice cried out and there was a surge of magic that flashed against my wizard senses and the lights went out. Obviously, this was done by some sort of wizard 
because the lights had lasted through the through the everything else battle through the battle through all of this other shit that was going on and so harry pulls up his staff to call it more light and he realizes that was their purpose and just as i did i realized what else the darkness would do it would force the humans to produce light specifically it would draw the response from wizards that being sunk into darkness always did we called the light. So as my staff lit up, I realized that I had just declared my exact position to every freaking monster in the whole freaking cavern. And they all turn to them. And then he uses a Wamamurus spell, which we learn is a volcano spell. And he's basically getting power out of the stone, creating a 30 or 40 yard long fountain of molten stone 10 or 12 feet high. Pretty fucking impressive. Mm-hmm. And it holds off the, off the ghouls for now. And he says, hell's bells on good. But these half-charred ghouls are still coming. They're still fighting. One of them threw Hendrix aside as if the huge man had been a rag doll and threw itself at Harry. But Harry is so weak. He throws up his shield bracelet and it sputters to life for a second and the ghoul bounces off of it. And the ghoul recovers and comes back at him again. And then Thomas. Thomas slices and dices this ghoul. He wasn't fast enough. The ghoul came at me with a dreadful howl. I didn't even have enough energy left to lift my head up, lift my body up off the floor, and face my killer head on. Fortune to draw the 44 from my extra pocket. <laughs> didn't consciously pull the trigger. But the gun roared and the ghoul's head snapped back before it crashed onto me. There was pain and I suddenly couldn't breathe. He was oh, he so consciously pulled the trigger, but he did get a little bit lucky, I think. Oh, 100%. But he, the ghoul is on top of him. They pull the ghoul off of him and he starts beating him with the gun. <laughs> Brill, brilliant, brilliantly, Murphy stops him. And Harry says, you know, he's lucky that the gun didn't go off. Very much so. And Thomas says, no time to rest now. Rest now and they have to keep moving. And they are trying to get to the to the rift to get into the Never Never. And Harry is lifting one foot and putting it back down again. Just walking. Just putting all his energy into walking. And then he noted that Marcone was with Hendrix doing the same thing. He realizes his fiery mountain of molten stone is beginning to dwindle. The spell was beginning to play out much as I had. And... They keep the ghouls had all seen the curtain lowering and they're rushing forward to it. And then a blast of green light flashed down the line. It went completely through two ghouls, leaving them howling on the floor, severed a third ghoul's arm at the shoulder and continued on through the white throne, leaving a hole the size of a laundry basket in its back. Ramirez had been waiting for them to line up like that. Gimpy Ramirez has got his hands at his sides throwing magic like a gunslinger and but he says but ramirez had their measure now he wasn't content to leave a single gaping hole trusting that it would incapacitate them sufficiently he hurled blast after hideously ruinous blast and left nothing but scattered piles of twitching parts of the first schools to rush him and those beyond had suffered nearly as greatly this is another this is an example of of Ramirez is a combat wizard. He is learning, adjusting, and adapting. And it's fucking amazing. 
What are you waiting for, Dresden? One little bit of Volca Volcanomancy and you get worn out? How do you like that? Not bad for a virgin. He also knows how to push Ramirez's, Ramirez's buttons. And even though he'd been beginning to slacken, the jive drew a fresh burst of ferocity out of Ramirez and he redoubled his efforts. And he says, it hurts to be this good. He and Harry in these moments of uh, absolute insanity, cracking jokes. Uh -huh. And it was at that moment that one of Vito's knives hits Ramirez in the stomach. Oof. So bad. And one of, one of the mercenaries grabs him. And he, he says that one of the armed men, mercenaries, they had to be. No gang of criminal thugs was so disciplined. They reached, rushed forward, taking charge of the wounded, seizing Ramirez and dragging him back towards the gate. And just charging through the thralls. And we learned Ramirez had worn a Kevlar vest, which wasn't much good for stopping sharp, pointy things, but it did stop from the hilt from tearing into the tissue of his abdomen. And at some point he sees his leg and he says, bloody hell. This is the other bloody hell. I don't know why there was two bloody hells in this chapter. They never say that. Um, Harry, there's a knife in my leg. When did that happen? In the duel, don't you remember? I thought you'd stepped on me and sprained my ankle. Bloody hell, there's a knife in my guts. And they match. <laughs> I like that last part. Yeah, it's and just they a match. Big match. <laughs> but it's just like, even in this, he's noticing these details. <clears throat> and he tells me, you know, be still, don't move around too much. And so he began to say something, but a panicked vampire knocked his leg and he obviously passed out because holy fuck. But Harry grabs his staff and pitches it through the gate after him so that he still has his staff, which I love. How long, I heard Marcone demand of one of the soldiers. The man checked his watch. An expensive swift stopwatch with springs and cogs. Not some digital thing. Three minutes, 11 seconds. How many charges? Six doubles. Hey, cutting in a little close, huh? Anything longer and they wouldn't accomplish anything. Can you walk? Yes, I can walk. I can get someone to carry you. Bite me. <laughs> Just trying to be a friendly guy. And he says, you know, he tells Murphy, Ramirez has got stabbed in the stomach. I need you to look after him. He confirms that he's out of the, the other warden already through the gate. And Murphy says, what about you? Malvora is still out there. He might try to kill our gate or try some other spell. I've got to be one of the last ones through it. You look like you're about to fall over. You in any shape to do more music? And more music. Any? You in any shape to do more magic? True. Hey, maybe you should do it. No one likes a wise-ass, Harry. Are you kidding? <laughs> as long as the wise-ass is talking to someone else, people love him. Get out of here. How are we getting back out again? Thomas led us there, but he'll lead you back. Or one of the others will. Or Ramirez, if some idiot doesn't kill him trying to help him. If it's all the same to you, I'd rather you did it, Harry. Which I think is very, very Murphy. She doesn't trust somebody she doesn't know taking her to safety. And she trusts Harry above all else. And so we get a little bit more of the countdown. Uh, and Marcone says, Dresden, what are you hanging around for? If you recall, I agreed to extract you alive. I'm not leaving until I have done so. Provided, of course, that it happens in the next two minutes. <laughs> and Harry looks around and there's and he sees three two brick bundles of C4 with detonators thrust into their surfaces fitted with old fashioned precision timepieces. Even their fucking bang bang boom boom guy knows supernatural shit, which mm -hmm. is interesting. Um and so he's a Thomas, time to go. And so they're the other vampires with him broke from their line and fled through the gate, except for one, a tall female wraith who I blinked. Holy crap, it was Lara. So she's standing ground. And um, I love the description of this fight here. Just like Thomas and his sister working together, just mm -hmm. fucking 
letting out just absolute like gore and violence together. Thomas and his sister stood alone against a horde of eight foot ghouls, stood against it and stopped it cold. It's so great. Uh Um, And and then I love how he remembers the name of the knife. He's really excited. And I think that the parenthetical, I think, is is Harry telling the story, not Harry in the moment. She covered Thomas's back and she was no weaker than her younger brother and perhaps even faster. The way the wavy blade short sword in her hand had a penchant for leaving spills of ghoulish entrails in its wake. Together, the pair of them slipped aside from repeated rushes and dealt out deadly violence to one foe after another. Ultimately, I think their, fu- their fight was futile and all the more valiant and astonishing for being so doomed. No matter how lethal Thomas and Lara proved to be, or how many ghouls went screaming to the floor, their black blood continued to slither back into their fallen bodies. And the ghouls that had been taken down continued to gather themselves together to rise and fight again. Holy fucking shit. Beside the beauty of the brother and sister vampires, the ghouls' disformed bodies and hideous injuries were all the more monstrous all the more vile. My God, Marcone said, his voice hushed. It's the most beautiful nightmare I have ever seen. We learn there's one minute, 48 seconds left. And he says, Thomas, now get your fucking asses in there now. And then there is a dull pulse, a throb of some power that seemed at once alien and familiar, a sickening, whirling sensation, and then a sudden stab of energy. It wasn't a magical attack. An attack implies an act of force that might be predicted, countered, or at least mitigated in some way. This was something far more existential. It simply asserted itself, and by its very existence, it dictated a new reality. And it slammed into him, but he says it wasn't one single thought. It was instead a melange of them, a cocktail of emotions so heavy, so dense, that it drove me instantly to my knees. Despair flooded through me. I was so tired. I had struggled and fought to achieve nothing but raw chaos, rendering the whole of my effort useless. My only true friends had been badly injured or had run, leaving me in this hellish cavern. Those who currently stood beside me were monsters of one stripe or another. Even my brother, who had returned to his monstrous ways in feeding on other humans. Terror followed followed hard on its heels. I had been paralyzed while surrounded by a monster of resilience beyond description. In mere seconds, they would fall on me. And then he becomes, guilt comes next. Murphy, Carlos, I had gotten them both killed. Useless. It had all been useless. Marcone's stopwatch lay on the ground near his limply outstretched hand. He'd fallen next to me. The second hand was sweeping rapidly downward, and the watches on the charges of C4, the nearest of them about ten feet away, did the same. And then I understood it. This was Vittorio Malvora's attack. This vicious, paralyzing brew of everything darkest in the mortal soul was what he had poured out. As the wraith administered desire, the Malvorians gave fear and the Scavis despair. Vito, who had gone beyond them all, had taken all the worst of the human soul and forged it into a poisonous, deadly weapon, and I hadn't been able to do a damned thing to stop him. I lay staring at Marcone's stopwatch and wondered the ghouls or the... <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Oh, absolutely. And from a lot going on, we go to a little going on. <laughs> where this is a, a cool effect. And I mm-hmm. like the way they describe it. Basically, Lashiel slows time. And the way she does that is by speeding up his brain. Which is phenomenal. 
yeah, and the way she describes it, that like she can't do it for long because you know it'll injure you. But also how like little things like where he tries to look around and she says, "Don't try, don't do that. <laughs> You're gonna fucking hurt yourself." Yeah, no, 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 no. Don't do that stuff. No, no, no. Literally, do nothing. Just like have this conversation with me. And the line, "Time does not exist," not in the way you consider it, at any rate, is great because she is so far above our understanding of things that mm-hmm. we have no fucking. She, she's on another plane. Exactly. And she begs him to take up the coin, you know, how like we we can make compromises and accommodations can be made. Like, you know, you're not going to be a slave, but he basically is like, I'm under no circumstances. Am I picking up the coin? Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. If you would help me out, but I'm Please not assist me, but I'm not going to give away my soul. Exactly. And you know, this, it turns this conversation on its head because he's talking about not wanting, not wanting to be taken in by Lashiel, and Lash is scared that she won't be taken back in by Lashiel. Mm-hmm. And it's the two sides of the coin. But unintended. <laughs> she's here all week to be bartenders. <laughs> she's begging Harry. She says, "Please, you know, she'll never forgive that if I help you here." She appears in front of him. Thin, eyes sunken, her hair is a wreck, she's, her face is twisted in pain, she's crying, like, knowing that she can hurt him. Mm-hmm. I like his, you know, she's, like, you're gonna, you could get brain damage from this, and he says, like, it'd be nice to have brain damage. I already like Jello. Maybe they'd have candy <laughs> or whatever home they stick me in. Either way, it would be better than having my brain scooped out by ghouls. Mm-hmm. She realizes it's for his friends. Because if frying my brain got Murphy, Ramirez, Thomas, and Justine out of this mess, it would be worth it. Thud thump. I like the the ongoing thud thump tick in the background is is a a nice touch. Oh, yeah. Again, very cinematic. The line here of I, she shakes her head and says, she doesn't deserve you. She separates herself from Lashiel. Mm -hmm. She is now Lash. He gave that to her. Mm Mm-hmm. And she says, it's my choice. Listen to me. Vittorio has been given power. He is possessed by an outsider. This attack is drawn directly from the mind of the outsider. <laughs> Gosh, that was interesting. Not relevant, but interesting. <laughs> it is relevant because of the circumstances of your birth. Because of why you were born, Harry. Your mother found the strength to escape Lord Wraith for a reason. There was a complex confluence of events that would have given a child born under them the potential to wield power over outsiders. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. Outsiders are all but immune to magic. It took power garnered from centuries of study and practice, wielded by the most powerful wizards on the planet, to even slow them. Strange, then, don't you think, that you defeated one when you were 16 years old? And here, in a lot of ways, the entire series is turned on its head. Uh Uh-huh. It was not an assassin demon that Demorne had sent after him. It was he who walks behind an outsider, the most potent of the walkers, and a powerful knight among their ruling entity. This is description where he says, I remember, it's all, still a little blurry, but he remembered the end of the fight well enough. Lots of kaboom and then no more demon. And there was a burning building. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a burning building. Of course there was. We get this, you know, he says, after this, we're going to have a long talk about my mother and these outsiders. I'll tell you all that I can, which tells us exactly what's going to happen to Lash. <laughs> and she basically takes a step towards the bad guys 
and we're back to real time and the pain eased, not much, but enough for him to let him suddenly move his arms above his head. At this point, we basically know we can act. The ghouls are coming up. Vittorio standing over Lara talking shit. Mm-hmm. Kicks her. His leg is still on fire. His leg's still on fire. But he's kicking her and basically yeah. talking about how he's all the terrible things he's going to do to her. Um, and it mentions that he thought maybe he was going to recruit Thomas, an outcast like you. Mm-hmm. But he's a sad dog, too ugly to be allowed in the house, but faithfully defending the master that holds him in contempt. It's like that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm a bad guy. And, but we will start with, with the busybody wizard. Burns hurt, Dresden. Have I mentioned how much I hate being exposed to fire? <laughs> no sense in wasting perfectly good irony. He says fire, and we pull the trigger on the shotgun, and it removes Vittorio's right hand at the middle of his forearm. Jesus Christ. The way I hear it, amputation is bad for your concentration. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I imagine so. But I also love, like, Harry, he is all about, like, oh, if that's not a, if that's not a straight line, and then no perfect, no sense in wasting perfectly good irony. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just love it. Kicks him in the knee and bends it backwards, so he just continues to fuck this dude up. He went from mm-hmm. fully in charge to in some serious trouble. And, you know, we have a bit of a standoff here. Basically, Harry's got a gun pointed right at him, and he tells him, we're, we're, we're fucking leaving. And... You do anything else, I'm going to blow your face off. But if he does that, then the ghouls will kill them, right? So it is kind of a bit of a truce here for a moment. Mm-hmm. But he gets Thomas and Marcone to the gate. Lara's kind of walking him through because he's facing away from the gate, giving him directions here. And here's our first tool. I mean, I think he's, he believed Cowell was there before, but now we see for sure, we see Cowell's in the other gate and he shoots a blast of power at them, but he destroys the gate behind them. And Lara quickly tries to grab him and dive through, which I think is really cool because mm-hmm. Harry thinks she could have gotten through if she wanted to by herself, but she tried to save Harry, which is interesting. And as the gate is closing, Marcone says, 19! They miss the gate. They collapse on the floor. 18! Came Marcone's shout as the gate Pops closed. We missed it. Oof. Just a lot going on here. It is. And then the only light was the dim scarlet glow from Cal's gate, and everything had become blood and shadows. The eyes of dozens of ghouls burned like nearly dead coals as they turned toward us, reflecting in that lurid luminescence. And Harry tells Laura, Hey, hon, this is what this got cavern gonna go boom. Uh, there's no way out. There, w- there might be a way to sur- for survive this. I was too tired to work any magic, but you can trust me. That's what you can do. Done. No questions asked. She's going to just trust him. Get us to the tunnel's mouth. So they go up to the tunnel's mouth, and behind me, Cal was shooting, shouting something, and so was Vittorio, and the ghouls set up a howl and were running after us. Only one of the ghouls was close enough to get in the way, but Lara's wicked little wavy blade sword ripped straight across its eyes and left the monster momentarily stunned with pain. Holy shnikes. And so they're at the mouth of the tunnel, and Harry's looking at the smooth tunnel walls and shakes out a shield bracelet. And the demonic flying thing Cal had went had let free is swarming around their head. And he says, now, kiss me. I know that seems weird. Lara didn't even wait. (laughs) 
So they, her mouth met mine and oh my God. Laura had once boasted that she could do more to me in an hour than a mortal woman could in a week. But it ain't boasting if it's true. And so he discusses, he talks about the hunger and he knows that she's a monster, but she wanted me with a passion so pure and focused. The succubus kisses a lie, but he, he says, it made me feel that I was attractive enough, strong enough, worthy enough to deserve that kind of desire. Which is crazy because just moments ago, it was about the agony, the defeat, how he's not good enough, the guilt. And it's, it's just a great kind of full circle where he comes back to this. She makes him feel worthy. She makes him feel enough. And then his body screams, uh, you know, stop, fuck the stopwatch and the bombs and the monsters, forget everything and feel her and nothing else. It was a close thing, but I held back enough to keep from forgetting the danger. The lust nearly killed me. But lust is an emotion, too. I embraced that lust, allowed it to enfold me, and returned the kiss with nearly total abandon. With his left hand, he extends a shield bracelet towards a cavern, the bombs, the onrushing ghouls, and I fed that tidal force of lust through it, building up the energy I would need, some part of me shaping and directing it, even as the rest of me concentrated on the mind-consuming pleasure of that single kiss. The clock stopped ticking. The explosives went off. Cleverness, determination, treachery, ruthlessness, courage, and skill took on a, took a leave of absence while physics took over the show. So basically, we learned that Harry can pull emotion and energy from, the, from, the, from around him to increase the strength of his magic. And that's just what he did, which is brilliant. And the fact that he thought about it on the fly, I love it. Um, and the force and energy hits the shield and... He says, I filled the space at the mouth of the cave with a flexible, resilient energy and packed layer upon layer of it behind the shield and more of it all around us. I wasn't trying to stop the energy, the explosion. I was trying to catch it. And there was an instant of crushing compression and I felt the pressure on my shield like a vast and liquid weight. And they, he gets thrown to the ground they begin to tumble, blinded by the flame. He fight, he's fighting to hold the shield, hardening it, and holding on to her at the same time. They hurtled up the tunnel and are flung out of the explosion like a shiphead of a hurricane, or more accurately, like a ball being fired down the barrel of a long, stony musket. The shield banged against the smooth walls, dragging more f effort out of me. A single outcropping might have, might have stopped our progress for a disastrous instant, shattering stone, shield, succubus, and Seamus in one big mess. Thank God the vanity of Lara's family had made the walls of the tunnel, made sure the walls of the tunnel were polished, smooth, and gleaming. And they fly through the air, and somewhere near the top of the arc, right about when Lara's legs twined with mine, she ripped aside my shirt and hers to press her naked chest against mine. I had just begun wondering what it was I'd forgotten about how kissing Lara was not the best idea when there was a horrible crashing sound that went on for several seconds. We weren't moving, the shield wasn't under pressure, and I was so dizzy and tired I couldn't string together two thoughts. I lowered the shield with a groan of relief that was lost in an answering moan of need from the succubus in my arms. Stopped. L Lara stopped. And then she recoils and pulls back, and there are blisters on her around her mouth she says bloody hell i can't believe you're still protected but it's old my intelligence said miss rodriguez hadn't left south america she hadn't you mean dresden 
Do you mean that the last time you had relations with a woman was nearly four years ago? Depressing, isn't it? I had just always assumed that you and Miss Murphy... No, she... she doesn't want to get serious with me. And you don't want to be ca casual with her. There's an outside chance that I have an abandonment issue. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, I have enormous personal respect for you, wizard, but that's just sad. Saved my life just now, I suppose. Yes, it probably did. And I owe you an apology. For trying to eat me? Yes. For losing control of myself, I confess. I thought we were facing our last moment. I'm afraid I didn't restrain myself very well. For that, you have my apologies. Huh. Sorry about the damage to your home. Under the circumstances, I'm inclined to be gracious. You saved my life. You could have saved yourself when the gate was closing. You could have left me to die. You didn't. Thank you. I gave you my word of safe passage. A member of my court betrayed you. Betrayed us all. I could not leave you to die without forsaking my word. And I take my promises seriously, Mr. Dresden. And he mentions again that she didn't go out of her way to, set, to, to save Cesarina. <laughs> and, uh... Oh, it was just so difficult. I could did all I could to protect members of my house. Gosh, golly gee. Um, you, you couldn't say that usurping traitor Slords gave us either. Life has changed. <laughs> and then he says, you know, I've, I, I, I have put together something in my head that somebody else gave Scavis this idea. To hunt the low-powered mag magic folks. This seems you know. kind of out of nowhere. I guess we can talk about that later, but it seems kind yeah. of out of nowhere to me. But I feel like she's manipulative, and he's just saying that this is part of her manipulation. And I think she also knew that Harry would save the day. These people, tr these people and beings trust Harry. I think. I also think part of it is that Thomas trusts Harry, mm -hmm. so Lyra Watches trusts that. him as well. Yeah, and. Uh, it was you who came up with a plan to kill those women. Perhaps not. Lord Scavis is, was, a well-known misogynist. And he proposed a plan much like this one only a century ago. And you have no way of proving otherwise. I don't need proof to act on my threat. To act on my own. Is that a threat, dear wizard? What threat could I possibly be to you, Lara? What makes you think I won't kill you right here, right now, while you are weary and weakened? It would likely be intelligent and profitable. Why not finish you right here? You gave me your word of safe passage. So I did. And she's like, okay, what the fuck do you want? He's like, I want those people back. I want those people back for their families. She's what do you want that I can give you? Reparations. A wear guild to the victim's family. And a promise that it never happens again. One of yours starts up with genocide again, and I'm going to reply in kind. Starting with you, I'll have your word on it. Done. The little folk, they shouldn't be in cages. Free them, unharmed, in my name. Anything else? Some Listerine. I've got a funny taste in my mouth. Our business is concluded. Get out of my house. <laughs> so he gets the fuck out. And uh, so he blows his whistle. I remember my dog reaching my side and holding onto his collar the last 50 yards or so down the road out until Molly came sputtering up in the blue beetle and helped me inside. Then I collapse into sleep. I'd earned it. She gets Harry back home. He says he's out for maybe six hours when he woke up with his whole back fused into one long, enormous muscle cramp. Ouch. Mouse rises up from the floor and heads out to grab Molly. Molly comes back and uh, says, Harry, what's wrong? Back. My back. Freaking vampire tart. It's my neck. <laughs> she has a small black bag that she refers to as her mother's medicine bag, which is 
more questions than answers has answers, but mm-hmm. it's got she got some uh, muscle relaxants, some tiger balm, and an herbal tea mix that Shiro found in Tibet. Great for joint pain. Her father swears by it. Paddle on, I'm doubling your pay. You don't pay me, Harry. Tripling it then, which I love, but also because he gives her shit all the time for like when things are getting spicy for referencing fiction. Uh-huh. But when things are calming down, he calls her Padawan. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Like, he's got to find a way to either be okay with it all the time or sh- stop doing that, in my opinion. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of when she's allowed to reference Yoda mm-hmm. and not. But uh, tells her to call Murphy, catch them up. Um, and he, he needs help to sit up and drink, which is embarrassing as hell. Mm-hmm. Gives up a shower. And I love this line. <laughs> it was heavenly. Nothing like a nightmarish near-death experience if you appreciate the little things in life, like cleanliness and not being dead. I love that. Oh, Mr. dismisses him after a couple seconds. Mm. Mouse did, not Mr. No, Mr. No, because Mouse. Oh, no, okay. Oh, that's right, Mr. did. Sorry, I had him backwards <laughs> in my head. Mouse is a good boy. Mr. has got shit to do. Still a very good boy, but got shit to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, he is in charge. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of stuff that you plebes don't understand goes into leadership around here. He's got... Files to file and plans to plan, rambles to ramble. It's a lot going on here, okay? Um, Murphy's on the way, and so they, you know, while they wait for her, they have a kind of back and forth where she's like, you know, tell me what happened. He's like, you tell me first. She's like, ah. about being in the car invisible, really nothing too exciting. He's like, that sounds really boring, but scary. Very tense. I had a throat voice <laughs> sitting there. But it, it's also, it was only an hour. That's fair. Think about it. I mean. Bing, bang, boom. The longest time was the waiting for them to go get the, the weapons, probably. Yeah. And, you know, she asked him, or basically he goes to tell her what happened on his end. And it's a great exchange, especially based on, like, kind of their trust and understanding of each other, where he says, there's a lot I can tell you. Some of it's just business. Some of it's going to be very dangerous for you to know about. It might even obligate you in ways you wouldn't like very much. So you won't tell me about that part. Didn't say that. I'm willing. But some of the stuff you'd be happier not knowing. I don't want to endanger you or trap you into feeling you have to act without giving you a choice about it. Maybe just tell me what you think is best for now. Good answer. Mm-hmm. Kind of gives us a little bit of expo about that we kind of knew already how he had backup ready and waiting. We've seen that Thomas has the power to navigate through the never never between sites that are connected with him. Mm-hmm. So that was how he was able to get into the never never and get everyone to the way to the to the you know wait the rendezvous spot I guess where they're waiting for Harry to open the way there. I wonder if Thomas might even have been able to open that himself because he's been able to he can open it back home right. We've seen him and he took Michael through away to a sex dungeon of some sorts that is that yeah. charity hasn't forgiven him for yet. Well, places, places that he has a connection to. Yeah. So I wonder, if, which is hilarious. I wonder if he would have been able to open up a way, probably somewhere at the manor, but maybe not exactly in the deeps themselves. We learned that all night long, there were pixies flashing by because Harry freed them in his owner uh, or Harry had Lara free them in his name. Mm-hmm. So he said, better call pizza express and step up my standing order. Well, it's also funny because now he's got, you know, brownies who clean for him. He's got a whole other new new swarm of, of uh, little people. I'm like, this is great. Well, he's got two has got his people. He's got the brownies who clean for him. And mm-hmm. then he's got this new group. So he's got, you know, he's amassing an, an army. He's the Lord of the Pixies. Murphy comes by. 
And as soon as she does, Molly grabs his car keys and dips, mm-hmm. letting them be alone. And I like the Murphy's basically the first thing you know, he, he says, he's, he's glad she's okay. And she says, that was fairly awful, even by your usual standards. <laughs> Which is so funny. Cause it's just like, I mean, Murphy's seen some shit. She's a cop in Chicago. And so she's seen that plenty, was, plenty of Harry centric stuff as well. Well, that too, but it, it's just kind of like, that was really bad. <laughs> we get introduction to Murphy's little bitty gun. And we find out that it was a gift from Kincaid. Personalized gift from Kincaid. <laughs> a box of Belgian chocolate. And it says, we'll always have Hawaii. What the hell is that supposed to mean? She ignores him pointedly and says, did we ever decide you blew up my car? Probably Madrigal. You stood him up for that cup of coffee, remember? <laughs> um, he disagrees. Didn't think it was probably him. And I mean, I mean, agreed. We never, that really didn't get resolved. Yeah, it doesn't really, none of them really make sense because they wanted him. I guess it could have been Scavis, who was the only one that really didn't want him on the trail, but it doesn't, none of it makes a ton of, you know, perfect clear sense. Um, ugh. And there's a line here that I don't think is necessarily bad characterization. I just don't like it where she says, Harry, wouldn't a decent human being be inquiring after his wounded friends and allies by now? His response that you know, if there's bad news, you would have told me. Agree, he probably should have, but also like, like he's fucking barely upright. Give him a break. Um, give him some grace here. Mm-hmm. Ramirez is in the hospital, as is Elaine. SI is unofficially watching them. Sorry. He's got some surgery to go, but the prognosis is excellent as long as they can avoid infection. He heals. He's got magical healing powers. Does he? Well, oh, like normal. All yeah, yeah, all the normal X Factor stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's more of a long term thing, I think. In the short term, you got to get the. Yeah, it takes time, but. Still, but yeah, no, he'll be all right. Hendrix is okay. He's got some. Marcone's got some of his people guarding them too. Cops and robbers, one big happy family. <laughs> and she, you know, she says she wonders why Marcone would agree to help. And he says that he bribed him with what? A seat at the table. Which is huge. Yeah. He is going to be a, a member of the Uncelia Accords as a freeholding lord, which means he has all the privileges and responsibilities of anyone else under the Accord. So he can go after someone when one of his people is killed. He, can also, he also is required to observe guest right and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's maybe 20 freeholding lords on the planet. An original Dracul the CEO of Monarch Securities, which is an interesting, um, we'll talk about that in a second. That's where Ms. Guard is from. Ah, there we go. I was like, where? Yeah, that's, that that's makes sense, where that. he hires consultants. And actually there's a real life, I think it's monarch.com maybe, but there's a real life online security company now that just started calling themselves Monarch. That's funny. And it has to be a reference to this. And it's just funny that Monarch Securities is now real. Yeah. Some Dresden fan. So no one who is a just a vanilla human being has ever even tried to become a lord mm-hmm. like this. And Marcone's breaking new ground. Because he's not he's not a vanilla human being. Okay. Just saying. And you need three current members to vouch for you in order to sign on. And Harry says he'll be one of them. He's got to come across and find his other two, but that's part of the job done. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> where she asks, like, can you speak for the council? And he's like, when it comes to <laughs> and protecting my area of responsibilities, warden, I damned well can. 
If the council doesn't like it, they shouldn't have dragooned me into the job. <laughs> I love that, though, where it's just like, look, bro, if you didn't want me speaking for you, you shouldn't have made me, given me this position. Yeah. I didn't ask this goddamn cloak, but yeah. I'm sure as shit going to use it. Fuck yeah. And, you know, they're basically using each other to, let's say, block out Lara or anyone else, but just to kind of add, the, the more players there are, the more people to get upset when the status quo changes, basically. Yeah. Well, the other thing, though, dragons exist. Mm-hmm. We've known that. Did we? Yeah. We met Ferrovax at the party in book three. Oh, okay. He's the, in an old Roman getup, and he's smoking his... He's not smoking, but his... That's, that's right. That's right. Cigarette is smoked. Yeah. He's on fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, um, that's how Charity and Michael met. He slew a dragon. Oh, that's right. You but know? I thought when they were talking about the dragon, the dragon was like a, a, a tool, like a... a Torture through a torture tool. That's what it sounded like in that. Oh no, it's a it's an actual dragon. Yeah. Serial Thrax, I think is who he killed. And we know Ferrovax is alive. Uh, we gotcha, don't gotcha. know how many okay. other dragons there Sorry, are. I forgot about that. It's all good. Uh no, Murphy mentions that obviously he's gonna get more powerful out of this as well and gain new allies and resources. Well, yeah, obviously Marcone is using me too, but we needed him and this is this is the world we live in. So uh, he gets dropped off at the ho- at the hospital. You know, he heads to Elaine's room. Uh, she, you know, is getting dressed, whatever. And she's trying to get up and get out of town. Nothing too exciting. He lets her know that he secured a war a wear guild for everyone who died and the descendants. And he wants to get money to them, but also he wants to expand the ordo and kind of create a network of contacts for these smaller level talents. You know, maybe teach a them safety the- network. Yeah, exactly. So they can coordinate, cooperate, and support each other. And the I other really like I'm this. thinking about was that this is very parallel to Murphy teaching the self-defense classes for women. Yeah, same idea. Just giving yeah. giving people an, a chance. Yeah. Giving them a tool that hopefully they can, you know, use and as a springboard to to bigger things. And it's cool that they want to get involved with that. She kisses him gently on the lips, which I don't like because she sucks. Yes. We go into Ramirez's room and he's a lot worse for wear. But he's alive. But he is alive. He's stable. He's in the hospital. You know, Harry's called, listens to Wind, who's the preeminent healer on the White Council. He kind of explains what's happening. <laughs> he says, Harry Dresden, human cannonball. Obviously, there's no way we got Cowl. Yeah, I think Vito got vetoed, which is good. Yes. And this is the conversation that Harry's not looking forward to having, but needs to have. When Amira says, good thing you had that army on standby, huh? Hey, it's late. I should let you get some rest. <laughs> we need to talk. About what? <laughs> about how tight you are with the vamps? About you making deals with scumbag mobsters? I recognize Marcon. I've seen his picture in the papers. Jesus Christ, Harry supposed to be on the same team it's called trust man gee a warden doesn't trust me what what don't worry about it i'm used to it i had morgan sticking his nose into every corner of my existence my entire adult life all hail the drama queen harry I'm talking about you not trusting me man it's a good exchange because it makes again harry's kind of been this like drama queen i mean he's he's been the one that's like oh the council doesn't trust me so i have to do all this shit at this point you have a guy who trusts you to the fucking hell and back almost quite literally here and all he wants is a piece. He wants something. He's holding him accountable. He's trying. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, I think that's important. Harry needs to be held. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He needs to be held accountable. And uh, like, obviously, Harry doesn't trust the council. Maybe since New Mexico, maybe before that, clearly. Well, we've known it's been, since before New Mexico, he doesn't trust. Yeah, but uh, but Ramirez posits that Ramirez or that gotcha. rather, that New Mexico was a big step because we know there's a small pool of people who knew about Camp Kaboom and it had to have been someone pretty high up. Yeah. And we know there's another team um, of something. Bad guys that are screwing over just about everybody. And Harry says, what do you call them? The Black Hats? After our ring wave wannabe buddy Cowl? Uh, you? Black Council. Ooh, yours is better. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Just that like dumb exchange right there is one of my favorites. But it's, it's just like buddies. It's such a buddy sort of situation. Ooh, that's much better. Oh, I like that one. You know, yeah. like just two Dubras, like when you give somebody a nickname, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can't trust our own people, but you're cutting deals with the vampires. You think you might be able to find the traitor coming in from the other side. He puts his finger on his nose and the gangster, he's a snake, but his word is good. Mm -hmm. he, he knows he's not working for Cowell because Marcone works for Marcone. Exactly. And he's like, was that so damn hard, Dresden? To talk to me? No, idiot. So, think I should come clean to the Merlin? Are you kidding? <laughs> he hates your guts. But I'm with you, man, all the way. <laughs> and that line right there is a good one. I uh, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. On that note, he passes out. Harry stays with him until listens to when gets there. You don't leave an injured friend alone. The next day, he heads over to Executive Priority, nay, the Velvet Room. He opens the door to Marcone's office without knocking, or rather he knocks and opens the door without waiting for an answer and says, tonight you will be visited by three spirits, the ghost of indictment past, present, and future. He'll teach you the true meaning of you are still a scumbag criminal. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Beckett is sitting on his lap and they're all mid-sexy time of a sort. He says he, if he'd have come 10 minutes later, it would have been infinitely more awkward, but alas. Dresden, it's nice to see you alive. Your sense of humor, of course, remains unchanged, which is unsurprising. And it seems to have died in your adolescence. Presumably, it entered a suicide pact with your manners. Your good opinion means the world to me. <laughs> oh, did you do? What's up? I love how he resolved some of the issues with the incubi and succubi in the Never Never. Oh, just by shooting them? Uh-huh. Yeah. I did not appreciate the way they were attempting to coerce my employees. <laughs> he didn't kill any of them. Uh, unnecessary. Yeah. So funny. He tells Helen that he settled the account with Anna's killers and they're taking steps to prevent this in the future, which she appreciates. And they ask her to give them a second so they can speak alone. Um, yeah. You keep me up. And Bonnie... Bounces in with a manila folder, gives a uh, Colgate smile and parts. Oh. oh, okay. And Marcone opens a stack of papers, slides it across the desk, and hands it to Harry. This is the contract that Harry sent over initially. And he started reading it from page one. Mm -hmm. uh, not that he could have probably noticed any changes, but as much on principle as anything else. And start doing so. They have a quick chat about Demeter, the alias 
he concocted yes. for Helen. Persephone was Demeter's daughter, carried away by the Lord of the Underworld um, in Greek mythology. And basically, Harry makes the connection that the girl in the coma, who Marcone was using the shroud to attempt to heal, the Jane Doe up in Wisconsin somewhere, is Helen's daughter. We've seen that shootout now. Mm-hmm. And supposedly she was killed, you know, officially rather, she was killed. And Marcone gives us some background there that his predecessor was the Vargasis, and his son was the one who attempted the hit. And the girl got shot, but basically, for speculative legal reasons, they either they didn't want her to die, but they also didn't want her to come back, basically. Yeah. A witness or something, but you know, just it just makes it tricky. So they basically hid her away and <laughs> Marcone says. There was a great deal of corruption at the time. <laughs> at the time. But Marco and Tony Vargasi, their whereabouts are unknown. Anything could have happened to them. Who knows? Luckily, someone like upstanding gentleman like Marcone was there to pick up the pieces of their organization. Thank goodness for small favors. And uh, he found her a couple years later and has been visiting her since. Helen doesn't know she's alive, but there's really not much to do about it at this point. Um, and Harry decides he doesn't have the right to tell her either. It isn't really fair. It doesn't really mm-hmm. do a whole lot. It would mostly be hurting Mark, trying to hurt Marcone. And it wouldn't, it's just a shitty situation. It really is because no, there's no winners. Yeah. You know that line there that he felt responsible for the little girl who'd taken a bullet meant for him. I'd always assumed it was because Marcone had decided to manipulate manners to make himself appear to be a more preferable alternative to more careless criminals who might take his place if the cops took him down. I'd never even considered the idea that he might actually give a crap about innocence being harmed. He ran a business that killed far more people than any amount of collateral damage could. He was still a criminal, still a bad guy, but he was the devil I knew, and he probably could have been worse. And the more we we find out more and more about him every time we have an interaction with him, and this is when I said that, you know, the whole... Marcone is a, is a lot more like Harry than I think he'd like to know, like to mm-hmm. like to see. This is another moment of that. Yeah, like I'm not sure going back a long ways, but there's a bridge, like a branch somewhere where Harry could have been very, very similar. Yeah, definitely. But it's interesting. And we get to the last page of the contract. Two spots of Uncelia Accord members are already filled in. We see Donar Vaderum, current CEO of Monarch Securities in Oslo, <laughs> and Lara Wraith. Signing on behalf of her father, the White King, who is obviously in charge of the White Court. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very dangerous how perceptive Marcone is. Oh, very much so. But you would expect no less. I, like lines like that, I feel like are far more dangerous than a lot of the overt things he does. Just because he's very, he picks up on things more quickly than is useful for a villain. Because <laughs> he's kind of a. But he's an anti-hero kind of almost not quite yet on the hero side but he's no but but like he has those villain. yeah he's yeah on the cusp. he's not a full-on not a full-on villain but not a full-on hero exactly that's it's like an anti-hero like he's not a hero he does good things but he also does bad things absolutely no it's it's him he's the problem it's him exactly him and taylor he signs the third line and leaves without another word it isn't a perfect world, and I'm doing the best I can. 
he heads back to his lab and he has Bob looking at his hand. And there, for years, had been an unblemished patch of skin in the perfect shape of an angelic sigil. It was Lashiel's name. And the mark was gone. Now it was just an irregular patch of unburned skin. It looks like there's no mark there anymore. Thank you, Bob. It's good to have a professional opinion. We find out that Lash is no longer responding. And as Bob tells it, the psychic attack was very severe and caused brain damage. Basically, as she said, might happen. It did. And he says, huh? See what I mean? You're thicker already. (laughs) 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 But the brain damage thing was real because there was like a recording of Lashio burned into his brain. Mm -hmm. Kind of a misnomer. This like you only use 10% of your brain. Like your brain fires different parts of it all the time. But yeah. This idea that she's kind of written in the back, you know, in the deeper sections of his mind. And basically, the damage was where Lash was. She basically sacrificed herself for his ability to fight off the psychic attack Mm -hmm. long enough to blow off Vittorio's hand and cause the kerfuffle that followed. Also, a portion of Harry was missing. It's your body, your life force, your chi, your soul. Whoa, wait a minute. Part of my soul is gone? People get so excited when you use that word. The part of you that is more than merely physical. Yes. You can call it whatever you want. There's some missing. Nothing to panic over. Part of my soul's gone? I'm not supposed to be worried about that? (laughs) He goes in and explains, kind of, you share it whenever you kiss people and hug people. You know, a little comes and goes. And like his magic, it grows back. Basically, it was using his soul to power the entity in his brain. It is interesting because it probably, that wouldn't be an issue with the normal time frame that the shadow of Lashiel is in someone's brain, right? But hers was there for years and years. So it probably is more noticeable in something like him. He's the battery that was powering her as he describes yeah. it. And that's a good, that's a good um, analogy that he's the battery that was powering her. You gave her a name and the will that came with it. And she used it to kill herself. Sort of. She chose which areas of your brain were going to take the most beating. She took a psychic bullet for you. I guess it's almost the same thing as choosing to die. No, it isn't. I said quietly. She didn't choose to die. She chose to be free. Hey, Harry, are you crying? No. I snapped and left the lab. He picks up his guitar and he starts to play and realizes that he can play much better than he ever had before. As he had, you know, when Lash was riding along, he was crushing it. And similarly, he can play at that level, even though she's no longer there. She kind of fixed that pathway or something on her way out. Kind of a trip. Yeah. He calls Father Fordhill, asks him to come over to pick up the blackened denarius. <laughs> and the next thing on our list is we're going to tail Thomas. Because we started talking about trust earlier in this chapter. <laughs> so of course we are. Um, he called him after the battle. And hadn't been very forthcoming. So he decides to tail Thomas to see you know, what he's up to. And he tracks him to a place of business of some sort. And it's a boutique called the Coiffier Cup. And there's coffee, there's techno music, thumping bouncily and mindlessly positive. That sounds awful for a <laughs> haircut and coffee place. Uh, it sounds absolutely atrocious. Just because you're there in the morning and it's bright. Maybe my mornings are different than others. As he gets, you know, he comes in, a young woman behind the bar comes out and gives him some, gives him a smile and says, hi, do you have an appointment? No, I just need to talk to someone. 
and he starts going back to the curtains and she tries to stop him, but <laughs> he ends up getting back there and we see a young woman under a dryer reading a magazine. Uh, there's a lady in a shampoo sink and another woman with a blissful expression while having her hair washed there. And it's Thomas washing her hair. <laughs> he was chatting amiably. <laughs> and the gal he had walked past and <laughs> Evelyn stopped and looked at him. Even the woman with cucumbers over her eyes took one of them off and peered. Thomas froze. You've got to be kidding me. Oh, Ari? <laughs> Thomas said. Oh, but she said, one of the stylists glances back and forth and says, Thomas, who's your friend? A little bit of more gay panic. And Thomas takes a break and they have a chat. This, this is your mysterious job? The money-making scam? <laughs> it was cosmetology school first. And like work as a security guard in a warehouse when no one ever showed up to pay for it. And then this? Here I'm thinking you've created your own batch of personal thralls while running around as a hired killer or something and you're, you're washing hair? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Washing, cutting, styling, dyeing. I do it all, baby. <laughs> this is how you're feeding? I thought that took sex? Intimacy, thrust. And believe me, next to sex, washing and styling a woman's hair is about as intimate as you can get with her. You're still feeding on them. This is the same. It's more like sipping, I suppose, than taking bites. I can't take very much or very quickly, but I'm here all day. It adds up. They're safe. They just enjoy it. Oh, goodness. I love how all in he is. Yeah. <laughs> Though I think my favorite part of that whole interaction is that when he talks about the French accent, an American wouldn't be paid this much. Yeah. I can't charge no this way. much. No way that... <laughs> No one would pay that much money to an American stylist, please. It's superficial and silly, but true. That's so funny to me. Harry tells him his secret is safe with him. He tells him about the safety network that he's trying to set up, you know, and says that, uh, you know, maybe Justine could help too. Might be a way to get her out if you want to. Are you kidding? She's been working for a year to get closer to Lara. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we find out why she was acting kind of weird, right? She's basically an informant. Of some sort. We're not really sure how deep or what she's up to on that front, but intelligence is intelligence. Um, you know, it's dangerous, but she wants to do it. And Thomas is back in favor of the White Court, which is great because he did in his recent heroism in defense of the White King, the explosion fucked up the uh, foundation of the manor, which is great. It's going to cost a fortune to fix. And they got rid of their convenient corpse disposal facility. <laughs> funny that he gets on thomas here about not trusting him to tell him about the hairstylist life in the same chapter that ramirez has to beg him to trust him about huge life altering experiences mm -hmm. it's kind of a uh he doesn't realize hot kettle yeah the hypocrisy he's got going on but um it is great to kind of we, this has been ongoing for a couple novels now right this mis yeah this intrigue this mysterious way that thomas has been living and we knew it wasn't going to be monstrous, but we didn't know if it was going to be medium stress. You know what I mean? And now we see that it's not. It's totally legit. And looks around the place for a minute more. The coffee girls were having a private conversation, evidently discussing <laughs> us. Fall the covert glances and quiet little smiles for any indication. I couldn't help it. I burst out laughing. And it felt good. <laughs> and that, my friends takes us through another fabulousness all right what 
do you think uh you said you went back through it a whole, a whole time which is yes, great you had the time to do that what uh what do you think of this chunk first off and how it fits in the novel and how the novel fits into the overarching series I, you know, there were some surprises. Um, there, I like that how it all got wrapped up, and mm-hmm. I, it was like they weren't like shocking surprises. They're like, oh, it's great. That's what that was, you know, that sort of shit. But uh, it, it was, it was all building to this, and it really did that well. You know, mm-hmm. I like how Thomas isn't doing anything bad, which is like, great. You know that, uh, but uh, that, but it also shows Thomas's character that he found a way to feed pain strength without doing something immoral. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I just think that, but that is Thomas. That's how our Thomas is. And it's wonderful. And he's wonderful. Truly is. I wonder. Sticky ahead. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I did like that. I loved, I mean, it's interesting. This chunk started out with the duel mm-hmm. and it escalated from there. Really was a lot. Definitely take. escalation. But um really cool stuff. Um I guess we kind of dig right into it there. The duel itself was actually pretty cool. See some cool oh, yeah. tech. Um it's good to see Madrigal get smashed against a wall and fall down into a chasm. I goo. It's lovely. I'm all um, in on that. What uh any other thoughts there or on the duel? I loved how how you know Harry and Ramirez work together. Uh-huh. But it also the whole that whole scene really gave us a strong understanding of why Ramirez is a warden. He's young, but he's very, very talented. He's not just a warden. He's like the he's the, the regional commander. Exactly. Yeah. No, he's he's not just a random schmo with a gray cloak. Yeah. He's, he's the youngest regional commander in some time. Like he he was promoted through the ranks and you can see why very functionally. He's a badass. Yeah. Which is cool. But I mean, you know, and, and that's one of the things I said about his abilities and without how he was, used, he's the combat, a skilled combat wizard. Yeah, no, for sure. You knew, you uh, posited last week that Marcone would turn up and be a part of this, as would Murphy somehow, mm-hmm. some way. We saw the, the how and the way, literally. And um, that was cool to see. I love, yeah. again, I, I've talked in the past about Marcone not being scary enough to be this scary force. We start to see the scariness here to catch up to his description in scenes like this. And we've seen it a couple times before, you know, certainly in Full Moon towards the tail end there where he supernatural speed to get a knife out or whatever. But his it's more his ability to command than anything else that is really terrifyingly competent and shows he can really cause problems even for supernatural powers as he does here. Yeah, definitely. The line or the conversation about John saving people was great. Mm-hmm. I love that it humanized Marcone. Oh, yeah. A humanized villain is so much cooler it, than a mustache twirling one. It doesn't just humanize him. It gives him hero cred. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You're, you're right. I undersold him with that line. That's great. It pulls him further from the villain line. Uh-huh. uh-huh. As does the finding out about him having taken care of the little girl and not just taking care of her, going to visit her. Yeah. I think he says weekly here. I, I believe so. But he doesn't have to do that. Correct, yeah. But he does that because it's just, it's these, it, part of it is guilt, I understand that. But it's also just, it's who he is, mm-hmm. and he doesn't talk about it because he doesn't need to. Yeah. I just think it's wonderful. I know, it's, it, this is a, a very, I mean, he shows up for only a few minutes, 
obviously between the two chapters, the six mm-hmm. chapters here, but like you know, he's there for the whole fight, but but the focus is on him in. for only a couple minutes. And really the every second of focus on Marcone is great, meaty, juicy stuff that yeah, really fun to digest. But such strong character development too. That's what I mean. Exactly. It's it's and actually not necessarily development clarification because we know a lot of this about Mar- Marcone. Mm-hmm. And when Harry said, "I need your help. We have to save them," and it's kind of like, "Well, Marcone's going to say yes." I had no doubts about it. Yeah. As we move forward, it's very interesting because again, remember this is the very first villain, quote unquote, that we met. Yeah. In the series, it was like chapter three or four of Stormfront, where we run into this guy and they share their soul gaze. He's clearly built up to be something, something. I'm not sure what well, that he, something is, but he's built he up. He is to be very powerful from the very start. Uh, yeah, yes, from the start. And as we've gone on, we've learned he's not only powerful in the human world because he's come to Harry's aid and he has dealt with some of the supernatural shit too. He's got a vast experience and knowledge uh-huh. that we don't know where it comes from yeah where it starts where it ends and because now, he's not human and now we've seen harry you know each novel harry's kind of leveled up a little bit yeah i mean this is the first time he stepped backwards at the end because he lost you know an ally and a source of power in lash but this is a, a big step up for marcone marcone is leveled up now along with harry and that's interesting and scary in its own way yeah he has this power. We don't know how deep, we don't know what, what this power is really going to mean in effect for well, a, also, a, a human. What it entails, he's not human, what it entails from his position. Because we know about the, the, you know, the heavy hitters in the Accords, uh-huh. the Nancy Lee Accords, but we don't know about these independent Lord types. We don't, we haven't seen. Well, I mean, the, the list of them are Dracul and a dragon. Yes. They're pretty fucking yeah. heavy hitters. It's pretty significant, but we also don't, have firsthand knowledge of what what goes on yeah you know what i mean what precisely does it empower him to yes that's that's the best phrasing of it definitely what it empowers him to do there's a line in there where he's talking about when the last week he talked to murphy about the ball of fire and said that it wouldn't help in a battle Uh uh-huh and then the very next chunk the lights go out it would have been the ball of fire here it would be Send that up there. Oh, I just thought that was funny in, because, you know, just, we read it, it back to back. Yeah, it's a context, and it's just sort of like. Yeah, neither here nor there, but just thought it was funny. I think, I mean, it's just, it's a good time. The bloodies are weird and off-putting. That Harry, I guess, maybe because they're both around Edinburgh people enough. Oh, yeah. That Harry, is Harry and Ramirez both say bloody. It's so random. Yeah, it's just weird. Who knows? I don't super care but there's one thing i want to mention in that battle where it said the ghouls were ignoring the thralls yeah ghouls are supposed to be mindless kind of predator gross things they would be going after the weakest and they're not unless they're under mind control yeah they're under a a deeper control for sure clearly you know under malvora but or you know malvora and he walks whichever walker it is in this case it's behind. Mm-hmm. He walks behind, I believe, um, as we've seen before in this very room, in this cavern, right? We saw him turn his spiky head back in blood rites in this room as one of the witches died. But it's just interesting that, like, again, like things aren't acting the way they should be, which adds another wrinkle of tension throughout. Like those ghouls which should really be taking down the thralls first. But they're under mind control. I understand that. But it just adds a level of spiciness and confusion and danger. Well, and, but it also do. Well, this isn't Cal. This is. But it's Cal, Cal, 
Cal helped. Yeah. I mean, not, do we really think Vito could do that by himself? Well, he's not. Vito's not doing that by himself. He's doing that with the possession of with Cal. No, if he walks behind, who's possessing Vito? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Vito is. Or an outsider of some sort. Maybe that, not necessarily he who walks behind. I, th- I thought that was the outsider in question, but yeah. If it, if, no, she didn't specify that it was. Okay. But yeah, we did see he who walks behind in this cave before. So I don't think it's. Right, because he referenced him in Blood Right. So I don't think it's a far jump, but it's certainly just I just think that I was thinking it might be someone else because then there was an, another instance where there was an outsider that got dragged in, um, but it wasn't specified. Okay. But I think Cal was involved in that as well. Uh, wasn't he? I don't remember any I don't remember because I know there around was another Cal. Inc- the, the outsider we saw before in this series was or that I can recall is when obviously Harry, you know, had his battle, bef- you know, and did the burning building or, you know, mm-hmm. that's back with the morn before. Yeah. We know that when the curtain went up, but then at the, in the climax of blood rights, when one of the coven of sex worker sorceresses dies, her body is like possessed briefly by an outsider. And I believe it's he who walks behind there as well. Okay. Probably worth looking up. Yeah. Madge calls up. He who walks behind. It was magic. Okay. But I mean, it's obviously there's, it's not, he, it's not always, doesn't always have to be he who walked behind, right? Correct. And it actually, you're, okay. you're right that she doesn't specify which outsider. Just, she tells about which outsider he has dealt with. Correct. You're right. So we've seen he walks behind a couple of times. We don't know that it's he who walks behind, behind this one, but mm-hmm. we've seen him behind, be to, behind. <laughs> we've seen him able to fight off the power of the outsiders before yes in a way that he shouldn't be able to so we learn a big kind of we learn the why here yeah that's a huge piece of information that i've almost blown a couple times on here (sighs) um or at least a terminology that i won't say here but that connects with that ideology Mm -hmm. he is protected in some way from them and we get that it is connected to his mother. It's a whole, it's a whole. Well, that was actually going to be one of my questions before, you know, I read that was, you know, just a ponderance was Harry's mom is so strong. There's got to be some strength thing there. And like, we know that he gets his magical power from his mom, but it's, there's just so many open ends that we don't know enough about his mother Uh that, that really does tie a nice bow for some of that stuff for me. Oh yeah. A very little about his mother for sure. Yeah. Sounds handy. Everything we learn about her is... What's that? Much appreciated. Yeah. Everything we do learn about his mother is a new mystery. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Ramirez got fucked up. Glad he made it, for sure. For all the danger and terrifyingness, we really haven't lost a big player, which is nice, that I can think of. The universe. What's that? What'd you say? Jim will hear that. Oh, Jim will hear that. He will. Life is no good uh, when Jim gets in the way i mentioned as we were going you know when they get to the end one thing i again i talked about how my struggles with the geography but laura taking him from the fallen gate to the entryway of the cave like the mouth of the cave how far was that well you remember he they were at the top mouth of the cave what's her face justine walked him to the mark the chalk mark Mm -hmm. then they went back towards the mouth of the cave towards the way down so I don't think it was that far. Well, I, she she's not at the mouth of the cave, like the entrance of the, to the open air. I thought she was more towards the bottom of the, but where the deeps heads up is what she meant by that in that situation. Because that from there, he would catch the explosion kind of like an umbrella and like poof him up. But what I'm saying is that from... Well, she ran them up to the mouth of the cave or the front, near the front of the cave. Yeah, they're still at the bottom. They're still in the same room at the bottom. 
But what I'm I saying think- is, yeah. What I'm saying is, from the gate, like that's what I said at the beginning. I I, I don't understand the geography here. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone can correct me because there's there's four kind of there's the the two gates, there's the white throne, and there's the mouth of the cave. And I don't really know where any of those interact, <laughs> sector interact. Well, but okay, in my head, in my head, okay, you've got a rectangle piece of paper. The top right is the mouth of the cave. Okay, there's some little wa- like the actual opening to the open outdoors. And it meanders down. There's enough of a turn that Justine can find a place where she's far enough from the mouth of the cave and far enough from the people that they can't hear her talk. But then it comes back. So there's got to be like a kind of a, a vestibule. But that doesn't really okay. make sense. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. But it's a, if it's a, it's a naturally occurring cave, it, it does. Um, and then there's like the part that he goes down, he, he, you know, lights on fire and walks down it. Then there's this big flat area. Okay, in the middle of the piece of paper. And in the center of the bottom is where I pictured the, the throne was. Okay. And then there's just a big, vast open chasm there to the deeps part. And in the deeps is where Cal opened the that his thing, right? So the whole cave is called the deeps. Okay, well, and then the deepest part of the chasm, I feel like, is that's where there's like a there's like basically a bottomless pit at the near the pit, I think, is where Cal opened his thing. And Harry just kind of opened it in the middle of the room. Yeah, it's all very interesting. Sketch. It's all, but I just like how that's how, how I kind of. I wonder how far she drags him at the very, you know, because it's a moment of a matter of seconds before they catch the um, explosion. But she's just a vampire. She's strong. Well, she is, of course. You know, she's got to be towards the tail end of her strength. But either way, I didn't love. I've mentioned it once. They're back at the manor. He just decides it, she was the master planner all along. Like, what? What? Possible. That seemed kind of, sure, it's possible, but it seems out of nowhere. Really? I didn't feel like it was all that out of nowhere. But it discredits, like, we just saw this whole conspiracy involving the Black Council, all three houses, and somehow it's now because it's also just, Laura's she, fault. She put, the, she put the, the idea into what's-his-face's ear. Is how I feel it. Oh, yeah, that's what. And that's, he ran from there. It just seemed, because she was she was playing um, Scavis, Vito, and um, Madrigal against each other. Is how I see it. Yeah, no, I understand it, and it it wraps it up nice and tidy where we get the wear guild out of her. But it just seems. I, I don't have an issue with that actually. All right, so maybe, but I mean, maybe it was just me. That's all good. Well, I mean, it's just I think it's just different perspectives where it's just like I mean, because she's so fucking manipulative. Maybe I just think she's, I have a worse opinion of her than you do. <laughs> that could be true. I mean, she's a manipulative bitch. And no, I'm not a woman hater. I only just, I hate uh, Elaine and I know Lara's a manipulative bitch. That's all. I love Murphy and I really, I really enjoy Charity. <laughs> I, but you know, it's like, it, that's kind of like, I just, she's a manipulative bitch. Mm-hmm. I could totally see her doing that kind of manipulation. And I mean, look what she's doing just to run the, run her father basically but yeah that's how i saw it i gotcha i didn't think it was i didn't think it was that far out of left field it's outside of her like reason you know, her character it just seems like for harry to put it all together in that moment there just seems like what what like he does that a lot though but i also think that i don't think madrigal is a smart enough or b has big enough balls to do that mm-hmm. that's fair he's a smart little bitch right like and i don't think Vito is smart enough either so I think she kind of gave them the push in the direction. They maybe fleshed it out with Cowell's control, but I don't think she knew 
Vito was involved with Cal either. No, I definitely I don't, don't. I definitely don't see that as, as part. No. Of that and she thought they were just going to stir shit up, Be, cause some trouble, get caught by Harry, and then get caught by Harry, ending that mess. I don't think she thought that this it was going to end up with an outsider and all that other stuff. That's fair. I sometimes have a uh, problem with the ending chapters of these novels seemingly being a little too saccharine and, and tied up too neatly with a bow on top. Mm-hmm. I like the way this one closed out. I appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Oh, there were two things I wanted to mention in the, about this, the big fight stuff. Do we think the mercenaries came from Monarch Securities? Because they have to be in the know about, obviously, the supernatural stuff. We, and... we know that's where Miss Guard comes from. Yeah, I just feel like that they are a security company that would do that. It might make sense. Certainly, they're mercenaries who, are, who know a little bit about fighting supernatural stuff. So they're probably, the options are few and far between. Yeah, that's what I mean. And and we know he has this relationship with Monarch Security, so it, it quite possibly that I think that's probably a, a safe assumption and an expensive one. Yeah, a very expensive one. Um, the other thing is, I thought it was funny about how we talked about kicking Vito in the knee. Mm-hmm. If you were a red court or black court vampire, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> but it, a lot of the story is black versus white in this book. Black versus white. Black versus white. But we've already discussed that there's so many shades of gray. Just like Harry talking about, he doesn't even know who the good guys are anymore. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of bring that in. But yeah, for this part, like, there's interesting things, interesting, interesting kind of things that it made me think about. Yeah, no, for sure. We definitely get, it's not the shuffling of the deck by any means, but it's just kind of a reframing of our somewhat ally, somewhat villain contingencies here. You know, <laughs> uh, obviously the white court gets blown to hell, mm-hmm. but our, then our understanding of Lara gets turned on its head right at the very end. You know, Harry. But it's that it's that sliding scale of good versus evil. Yeah, where she's barely she barely registers as a bad guy even after that. <laughs> yeah. Hell, Marcone uh, is almost a good guy, protagonist at this point. He is, in fact. Mm-hmm. Are we going to talk about the full book now? Because I have a th- I have some things. Yeah, no, I was hoping- not a ton of points, of course. But that white versus black, and that when everything's on a sliding scale of gray, was one of the things that I noticed so significantly. Uh-huh. The other thing that made me giggle the second time through, and I didn't realize it the first time through, was that Thomas's boat is called the Water Beetle. Oh, yeah. Didn't get it the first time through. <laughs> this time, the first time it came up, I giggled. And the other thing is, this is a conspiracy theory. So after Anna, Anna dies, and Harry and Elaine go to tra- uh, track Mouse and get to Abby's apartment, when they're standing outside, Elaine uses something to sense who is inside. She says, there is another woman, but it's not another woman. Oh, shit. Right? I didn't. And now she doesn't, doesn't kill him at the end completely. Yeah. I didn't catch it either until the second time. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, I'm all for Elena's bad guy theories. I don't even need tinfoil anymore. (laughs) But yeah, isn't that crazy? Like, that was my huge realization. And this book reiterates how much I love Marcone. Mm -hmm. He's great. (laughs) Absolutely. He's a wonderful character. But also, I, I do like also how Murphy has kind of comes to terms that Marcone's part of the game. <laughs> She's going to have to interact with him. Yeah. Whether she likes it or not. It's funny. Anything else you pick up there on the read through that's worth kind of? Those were the big ones. I did. In that case, um, would you have anything on the yikes front? Yikes. But the thing with Lara had potential to be very yikesy. Mm-hmm. But the way it was done was brilliant. Because Harry can't, Harry had no energy left. But he knew he could draw energy from emotion. 
and lust as an emotion. I thought that was brilliant. It had potential to be super yikesy, and it wasn't. And I love it. Yeah, I thought that was pretty. He good. manipulated the manipulator too, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I guess how you bring that up? He's still protected by Susan. Yeah, four years later, which is interesting. But we're not really surprised. No, but it's interesting. And um, I will say the continued gay panic stuff is, um, yeah, worth a at least a small why yikes. They don't go so crazy onto it, but you know. But the also the way that they made Thomas Tomas mm-hmm. is French mm-hmm. made me giggle so much <laughs> because they're just like they turned this like well he could be a to- like a stereotypical American, but it's like oh no no he's French. I said, okay. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Everything makes sense. He's French, which is just so funny oh. and so ridiculous. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's just the first like Ellie. <laughs> when he's surprised yeah. by her. It's uh, so good. Uh-huh. Oh, good. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> As we're barreling to the end here, what uh, would you have for quotes of the week? One or two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Neither of them would get me out of the hellish Cuisinart of pain and death that this cavern was about to become. <laughs> I just think that's funny. And then this was literally one of my favorite lines in all the books so far. Beside Murphy, playing Clifford the Big Red Dog to her Emily Elizabeth was Hendrix. <laughs> That's a good reference. Because it's so, like, I can see it. Like, perfectly in my head. <laughs> like, just the size differential was amazing. Yeah. No, it's um, great visual. Right? I've never seen Marcone quite like this before. Animated, decisive, and totally confident, despite the nightmare all around. There was a power to it, something that brought order to the terrifying chaos around us. I could see why men followed him, how he had conquered the underworld of Chicago. I just think that's great. Oh, yeah. Um, and then this was just just because it's such corporate talk. We'll put a pin in this for now, little wraith bitch. <laughs> We're putting a pin in it? <laughs> um, uh, Thomas, I shouted, wakey, wakey. Now is not the time to lie down and die. <laughs> Let's see. I did love the interaction between Harry and Ramirez on Black Hats. Black Council. Ooh, yours is better. <laughs> yeah. Um, you read it, but I still I love it so much. Tonight, you will be visited by three past, present, and future. They will teach you the true meaning of you're still a scumbag criminal. Not just maybe. <laughs> <you know. laughs> oh, we had no overlap this week. Wow. Um, the way I hear it. Amputation is bad for your concentration. <laughs> and for some reason, I just love the paddle on. I'm doubling your pay. You'll pay me, Harry. <laughs> Tripling it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was heavenly. Nothing like a nightmarish near-death experience to make you appreciate the little things in life, like cleanliness and not being dead. I, li- <laughs> I like that one, too. Um, and not being dead. Yeah, this is like a throwaway at the end. Right. Uh, my favorite line in this chunk for sure was, I'm with you, man, all the way. I'm Ramirez. I love Ramirez. So. Ramirez, I swear to everything that is holy. I will be so unhappy and I will quit reading these books. <laughs> oh, goodness. Do you want. We like Ramirez. We do like Ramirez. You want to take a look at the small favor here? Yes, I have to open it up. Let me see. Did you get Because I did find it. Oh, good. I was going to send you a chunk. I have the Kindle app on my Kindle, my phone, and my computer. So if I open it on too many devices, 
it tells me I've downloaded it too many times. And so I have to go back through the whole process with Libby. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just takes a moment. Okay, let's see here. Okay, so we're going to read the first the first chap the first paragraph is just one word one sentence. Should yeah, I just read the first read, read the first couple paragraphs. See if there's, you know. Winter came early that year. It should have been a tip-off. A snowball soared through the evening air and smacked into my apprentice's mouth. Since she was muttering a mantra-style chant when it hit her, she wound up with a mouthful of frozen cheer, which may or may not have been more startling for her than for most people, given how many metallic piercings were suddenly in direct contact with the snow. <laughs> That's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it doesn't give you much to go on. But uh-huh. um, like I said, this this section is for like five lines, but it'll be worth it when we get to those ones. Um, what uh, you look? Do you see the cover of the audiobook and the what do you call the other kind of book? The... Book. The book book. The book book. Let me see. There's any thoughts based on that and also um... what we know of the way the series tracks. And this is book 10. Mm hmm. Oh, there's going to be the, not the Lashiels. What are they? The people in the coins? They should be the Lashiels. Um, Lashiel and the, Nar- and the Denarians. He still has Hellfire because in the picture, there's fire around him. He's got his gun in his right hand. He's wearing his cloak and the stupid hat that he never wears. <laughs> he's got um, his staff in one hand and the runes are glowing red. So he still has Hellfire. He might not have her in his head, but he still has Hellfire. So obviously it's going to be a Denarian book. Um okay. And he's going to burn another building down. (laughs) (laughs) Or another, because that's what it is. There's stairs, there's boxes, there's walls. He's burning a building down. That sounds about, that sounds pretty realistic. (laughs) I mean, not that far-fetched. Oh, good catch on the the runes glowing. I like that. Mm -hmm. Interessante. All right. Um, And that leads us into... I have said it before, and I will say it again. This book only emphasized the point that John Marcone is not human. He's got some supernatural going on. Don't know if he's a wizard. Maybe one of his parents is a wizard, and he doesn't have a lot of magical power. But he's got fucking something. And he's a more good guy than bad guy. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I dig it. I dig it. He's our antihero. I'm not going to sing it again, Liz. You're not going to make me <laughs> sing it every time. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. All right. I appreciate y'all. That definitely brings us to the end of White Night. And this certainly this episode, but this is the end of this novel and we move on. We got small favor next week. We'll start with one to six. And we may have to pretty soon here start going down to four or five chapters a chunk. They are getting pretty significant. These are getting pretty meaty here, but we'll kind of Ah. see how that goes. But for now, let's plan on the first six. Okay. Of small favor. And if we get into it and it takes 12 years to do it, we can always go back. We will have to. But um, <laughs> really exciting times. I did mention last week um, we had a new Patreon member, um, Shanda. We really appreciate it. So Woo-hoo. we would love to have y'all. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on around here. And if you are not a Patreon member, that means you have homework every week. You got to tell one person. Just tell one person. Tell your dog. They'll tell more people than you possibly could about the pod. But um realistically we just appreciate you guys so much for tuning in and existing and it's a miracle every time so short of that we have all the socials all the things but um uh she say questions you got at the podcast was on fire at gmail.com the podcast was on fire at gmail.com 
And of course, our Patreon is patreon.com slash the podcast was on fire. Patreon.com slash the podcast was on fire. And we're delighted to hear any thoughts or ideas or thoughts you have. Yeah, really enlightening getting some context of you know, the things that we come up with. You guys kind of sometimes blow our minds with some responses in there. And it really is uh, cool. Or y'all tell us, well, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which we appreciate those too. I love that. Yeah, I mean, story of my life. No, we, we definitely appreciate that. All the back and forth and life is good. So thank you guys for that. Thank and you guys. Any Elaine conspiracy theories I'm on board for, they just can't have spoilers. Oh yeah, if you got if you got some shit to talk on Elaine, you send it over. <laughs> Lissy might, I'm all in. Lissy might buy you a pony. <laughs> oh goodness gracious. Thank you guys so much. We will see y'all next Saturday, Sunday, next weekend. But for now, just appreciate the heck out of you. Really do. I have been Josh. And I am Alyssa. If the podcast was on fire. And it wasn't my fault. So stoked when I saw that conspiracy, my conspiracy theory about Elaine. Oh, that's great. I was so stoked. I was like, that bitch. <laughs> not that so, you need a conspiracy theory to say, fuck that no, bitch. But. No, not at all. But it was also kind of like, it was one of those, it's really good she wasn't at the big bad fight. Because who yeah. knows what she'd do? Who knows which side she was on? Exactly. But yeah. <laughs>